Last Sunday morning, we began a new study in the book of 1 Peter together. So if you want to take your Bibles and join me there in 1 Peter chapter 1. And if you weren't here last Sunday morning for whatever reason, didn't get a chance, we obviously covered some introductory things as we'll begin a new book study together. So uh, you can listen to that message online if you go to the church website, if you want to kind of just get a little bit of background for First Peter, uh, to kind of have that as a foundation as we begin our new study. And if you do need a Bible, the guys in the aisles have some copies of Scripture, just let them know. As we turn to First Peter chapter 1, and this morning we're going to pick up where we left off last week in verse 3. And we'll go from verse 3 down to verse 5. And would you stand together with me out of reverence for God's word as I read the scripture this morning. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are being kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And Father, we hold the word of God before you in your presence this morning. Thankful, Lord, that you have given to us this precious book, Lord, that we might know your will, that we might understand your heart and your ways. And Lord, we ask for the help and the assistance of your Holy Spirit to be able to understand, to be receptive to what you would want to say to us as the living God this morning. Lord, whatever that means in each and every one of our lives, just prepare us, Lord. We don't want to miss anything that you would need to say or want to say to us. So, Lord, give us ears that are awakened and hearts that are good, fertile soil to be receptive. And, Lord, we humbly ask by faith for the ministry of your Holy Spirit that we would not hear wise or persuasive words of a man, but experience that demonstration of your Spirit and power speaking directly to our heart, the things of God this morning. Bless your word, Lord, with the life of your Spirit. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you teach us now. And we believe that's what you want to and will do. In Jesus' wonderful name we ask and everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, in Psalm 51, David prayed there, Restore unto me the joy of your salvation. I appreciate that David was honest enough in his life to actually say, Lord, I ask that you would restore unto me the joy of of your salvation. See, when a person that seems kind of first gets saved, when you first meet God and you really come to know the Lord, I know it was that way for my life. I'm assuming it was for yours as well. When you first encounter God sincerely and personally, you experience the forgiveness of sins, the salvation that God supplies. That produces tremendous joy, there's enthusiasm, there's excitement that overwhelms your soul in that moment, and you're kind of just overflowing with a celebration of what God has just done in your life as you've come into this awareness of what it means to have a relationship with God. And it seems that David had come to a place in his life where he realized, honestly, that he had kind of lost a little bit of the sense of that awe or astonishment that he should have had over the incredible salvation that God had supplied for his soul as an individual. 
And because of that, you kind of sense that in Psalm 51, he's asking God, God, would you restore to me, restore back, restore to me the joy I once had over your salvation in my life? You know, that one song that we sang this morning, I brought the song sheet up here with me. Uh, the second to last song we sang, there's the statement in it that says, filled with wonder, awestruck wonder at the mention of your name. Jesus, your name is power, breath, and living water. Such a marvelous mystery. You know, and as we sang that, I, I thought to that myself again, that reality of, again, filled with wonder, awestruck wonder at the mention of Jesus' name. Again, when we worship the Lord, is that really the reality of what's happening in our soul? And I'll tell you, interesting as Peter opens verse 3, he starts out of the gates with this, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's almost this kind of spontaneous expression of praise as Peter just pondered the, the grandeur of God's salvation. I wonder at times if that's lacking in our lives. And I wonder perhaps if Peter is wanting to remind the believers that he's writing to here if he thinks they may have potentially lost their perspective a little bit in the midst of the difficulties that they were going through and the challenging times that they were experiencing as we know they were under a time of suffering and great distress in their circumstances and he wants to remind them that God's glorious salvation is something that we should never stop marveling over. It's something that we could ponder continuously and continuously and, and something is genuinely wrong when we lose a sense of the wonder and the astonishment of really what God has done for us in our salvation. And the passage we're looking at this morning, verses 3 through 5, gives us kind of a description of some of the marvelous benefits of God's grand salvation, what it has done for us, what it is doing for us, and ultimately what it still has in store for us. And if you remember last week, as Peter came out of the gate there in verse 2, he had just described the process of God's salvation. Look with me again in verse 2. It's quite a mouthful. We digested it slowly last week. Peter began his letter by calling the believers elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. So Peter had just given this description of the process of salvation and we took note of how all three persons of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit are all involved in the process of salvation. That it's the Father who chooses us and elects us and predestines us to be saved. That it is the Holy Spirit who sets us apart and draws us and convicts us and convinces us of who Jesus is and it really is the one that introduces us to Jesus Christ who is the one who, remember, shed his blood on the cross and he is the actual Savior and Jesus is the one who alone can forgive us of our sins and give us the hope and the gift of eternal life if we accept the gift that he offers to us, if we receive what he's done for us and we responsively obey in submission the offering of salvation that he supplies. And Peter described that incredible process of salvation. And now he continues on in verse 3 here with the topic of God's plan of salvation, beginning, as I said, in verse 3 with sort of this spontaneous form of praise and worship to God. And why? Because he's pondering God's salvation. And it just leads him, as he ponders God's salvation, 
to just express praise and to express worship to God. And, and I think to myself, man, what a wonderful thing. I wonder sometimes when we lose an interest in worshiping God, in praising God, in singing to God, if it's because we've kind of just really lost sense of the reality of what God's really done for us who God really is. And if we've kind of become spiritually dull, I wonder sometimes in my own Christian life, I wonder at times as I perceive the body of Christ and, and professing Christians as a whole, if when we seem to have this apathetic attitude towards wanting to sing to the Lord or praise the Lord, or, or again, you know, I'll get there when the Bible study starts because it's just easier. If, if I wonder, why is that? If I'm truly excited about God and worshiping God, wouldn't I want to be there to express praise to God and, and tell him how great he is and express to him in song and adoration Lord bless your name and to be able to use the courses and the phrases of hymns and praise songs to, to be able to express to God the praise that my heart wants to give to him because he's so worthy of that because I think about what he's done for me that's the whole essence of that very thing and Peter here I think he just never lost I picture Peter again this Fisherman, but yeah, and I think he was a very tough and kind of a, a real man's man. But at the same time, I just picture Peter with kind of this childlike heart at the same time. He would bumble and stumble. I think Peter just loved the Lord with a childlike faith. And I think that's why you find right at the beginning of Peter's letter, he never lost sense of that reality of who he was and what God had done for him as a mistaken, failing man. And just the reality of, man, God loves me. <laughs> He still loves me and what he's done for me. And because of that, he was someone, I think, that just had a heart that loved to worship the Lord. And so he just begins this letter by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And interesting, when you look at the term Peter uses there in the original language, it's a Greek word, eulogio. It should sound familiar. It's where we get our English word, eulogy. And if you've ever been to a funeral service or a memorial service, typically a very common part of a memorial service is someone will eulogize the person who has passed. Uh, many times when I do a, a funeral service or memorial service, I always make the absolute best effort possible to find someone connected to that person relationally whether it's a family member i know sometimes the closest family members and that's just too difficult the emotion but whether it's a family member maybe a little further removed so they can handle the emotions or a close friend someone who can do the eulogy portion of the memorial service because what is the part that is the part of the memorial service where basically someone just takes time to speak about that person's character and to say wonderful things about them to just honor them respectfully to give them kind of praise and admiration of who they were and what their life was about and what they did and those kind of things in such a way where they might bestow respect upon that person in the utmost degree in the presence of other people by the way they speak of them in a very high way. And because of that, I think it's wonderful when someone who's close and connected does it because it just has all the more meaning. I can read facts about a person, but for me personally, there's a dynamic that gets lost in that. And there's something so wonderful to give that honor to an individual and to speak from the heart of who they were and what they meant and to eulogize them. Well, that's the word 
that Peter uses here. When he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that's the word that Peter's actually using there. Peter, in essence, hear me, is saying this, in the same way someone's eulogized at a funeral service when someone speaks highly of them and praises them in the presence of other people, Peter says that's what we should do about God. We should be speaking highly of God in the presence of other people. We should be praising God and blessing God and doing what we can to honor God in a respectful way by giving him the utmost admiration and respectful praise we can in the presence of other people by using our words to talk about God, to talk about who he is, to talk about what he's done, to talk about what he's made available to us, and to even talk about what ultimately he will accomplish for us, that we should be telling people enthusiastically who God is and looking for moments in conversations where in a sense we can same idea, eulogize God in a way where we just honor him and bless him. You know, you're going to have uh, Thanksgiving gatherings, I'm sure, sometime this week with friends, family members, individuals. You know what? Look for opportunities in the midst of conversations to drop words of praise and admiration about the Lord. This is Thanksgiving. I can't think of a better opportunity. Well, I'm just really thankful for what the Lord did in my life this past year or who he is. Or I mean, it's a perfect occasion to do that. Some of you, maybe you're the only Christian in your family, so at Thanksgiving, that's your time. We're going to let the religious nut have his moment. Do you want to say a blessing? Well, you know what? Go for it and praise the Lord. Don't thank you for this food. Amen. No, Praise the Lord. Lord, we thank you for who you are and give the Lord glory from your heart. It's your moment. Take the opportunity and, and speak well of the Lord in his presence and in the presence of other people. And, and think of with me if you would. Is it not true as human beings, we talk about so many other topics. We are a people of communication and and we will boast and brag about this. Oh, guess what's going on? Or I got this new job or I got this promotion or this great thing's happening. Or we, we get excited and about this and that. We told, oh, you see what this sports team did? And I was going to say the Eagles, but that's probably not going to work too well. You know, just you know, all these things, oh, excited about this or excited about that. And we're always talking about, oh, just listen, isn't God a lot more exciting to talk about? If there's something exciting to talk about, certainly God has lots that we could talk to people about. Things that we can say about him to use our time speaking of him. And again, as Peter is pondering God's salvation, again, he's just writing out a letter here. There's this overflow of celebration of God's salvation. And he just speaks about the benefits of it in these verses this morning. And notice the first benefit of God's salvation he speaks of is God's powerful restoration of sinful man. He speaks of God's powerful restoration of sinful man. Look in the text in verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to notice, his abundant mercy, and Peter knew God's mercy, not getting what he did deserve, according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Notice, Peter begins, he has begotten us again. Your translation may translate that he has given us new birth, or other translations say he has caused us to be born again. It's a reference to our spiritual conversion 
the day that we got saved the bible teaches us that when a person accepts jesus christ as savior and lord by faith that at that moment spiritually the bible calls that we are born again born again begotten again we've experienced new birth let's talk for a minute about what that means and why that's necessary the bible declares to us from genesis all the way through that we as human beings are born spiritually dead that we are born dead and trespasses in our sins we are not born with spiritual life the bible teaches that we are born sinful and we just prove that out as we live as sinners the rest of our life we don't become sinners we are born sinful and sinful by nature and then we just prove that out as we live if you have children i don't know how you could possibly question that if you've raised children you never have to teach them how to misbehave you don't have to teach them how to lie you don't have to teach them how to pull their sister's hair you don't have, you don't have to teach them any of that they know that naturally you teach them all the stuff that is good to do they have a natural inclination to do what's wrong they're magnetically drawn to that you see that in children it's a demonstration of what the bible tells us very clearly again in the beginning we know from the book of genesis god created man to have fellowship with him and adam and god you read genesis did what they walked together in the cool of the day they had fellowship Adam was in perfect harmony and relationship with God from the moment that the breath of God was breathed into his life. He was awakened. The system, the physical system, turned on. And Adam was alive physically, but he also was alive spiritually. And he walked and had fellowship with God and perfect relationship. And God told Adam, remember what he said, Adam, of all the trees in the garden you may eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This one tree, Adam. One command, one rule, that's all I'm asking. So that this is a, a love relationship. Adam, I need you to prove that you want to have a... So I want you to prove you have a relationship with me. So this one tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. God gave him one command, one thing to observe, to demonstrate that he wanted to have a relationship with God, that it wasn't a robotic forced thing. It was a relationship. Relationships are based on choice. Well, of course, we all know the story what happens. Adam, Eve, they disobey the Lord's command. But when Adam disobeys the Lord's command, again, the day you eat of it, the day, take notice, the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. When they partook of that forbidden fruit, did Adam drop dead on the spot? In the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. He didn't drop dead on the spot. Well, what, what happened there then? Well, a part of Adam did die. Physically, he was still alive, but the spiritual life and relationship that he had with God, that died. The spiritual part of him died instantaneously. That life and relationship he had with God. In the next scene, what do you see Adam doing? He's then hiding from God. Wait a minute. He was just walking around in perfect fellowship with God, talking to God, walking. He had perfect relationship with God, and now he's afraid of God. Now he's hiding from God. Now he's staying away from God. Why? because the light went out spiritually spiritual death happened sin causes death the wages of sin is death the soul that sins shall surely die so he lost spiritual life when he sinned there in the garden fellowship was broken and that was lost as a result hear me adam as the first human being could only then pass on to the human race what he possessed which was physical life 
He lost spiritual life. So he could not pass spiritual life on. He could only pass physical life on to repetitive generations. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 5 that sin entered the world through one man and death through sin and thus death has spread to all men. So that's why we can give physical life to newborn children, but you can't pass on spiritual life because we are born spiritually dead in our human spirit. We start out life dead in trespasses and sins. Now take note of John chapter 4 because Jesus there in John chapter 4 makes a statement and he says this, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him how? In spirit and in truth. God is spirit. So if we want to worship God, Jesus said we have to worship him in spirit. In other words, in order for us to truly worship God and have relationship with God, any type of fellowship with God who is spirit, that must take place in the realm of our spirit. We have a spirit humanly. We are a body, soul, spirit. We're created in the image of God. God is a trinity. We're in a sense an inferior trinity. We have a body. We have a soulish part of us, our, our intellect, our emotions, our will. And then we have a spiritual part of us. And, and to worship God, we must worship him in the spirit. So our spirit must connect with God in the realm of the spirit. But here's a problem we have. What did we just say? Our human spirit is dead. There's no life in our human spirit. Our human spirit is dead in its sinful condition to start with. There's no inner capacity to have fellowship with God in our original design. Such thing as a divine spark. You have this divine spark within you. You've got to find your divine spark on the inside and, and then fan your divine spark into flame and spirituality will be... Listen, there's no divine spark in you. There's no... You, know, you just got to turn over a new leaf. Well, it is just as gross on the other side. There's no inner spark. There's no human capacity to have spiritual life or any type of fellowship with God. We need help from an outside source. Again, think from this perspective. Let's say somebody has cardiac arrest and they dies. They, they dies. They die. Can a dead person bring themselves back to life? Can a dead person resuscitate themselves? No, they need help from somebody else. Somebody else may be able to hit them with the paddles and bring them back to life or do CPR. But a dead person can't give life to themselves. They need help from somebody else, from an outside source. Same with us. We're spiritually dead. You can't start spiritual life yourself. We need help to have an outside source impart spiritual life to us. This is why in John chapter 3, Jesus had that conversation with Nicodemus. He was a religious man. Remember, he was a, a Pharisee. He could quote Bible verses better than anybody in Israel. He knew intellectually scriptures. He knew religious practices. He could do all the mantras and routines and he knew the observances, probably when to kneel, when to do this. When He knew all the different... He prayed prayers. He did all types of religious activity. He attended meetings. He even was a spiritual leader in a sense, ruling over other people. But yet it was to that religiously observant man who knew all the intellectual information and all the activities and systems and, and again, the, you know, to follow all the rules of a religious lifestyle was to that man that Jesus said, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus hearing that for the first time 
thinking in the natural mind as you and I would. He said, born again? How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter into his mother's womb a second time? What are you talking about? I was already born once. I can't go back in my mother's womb and be born a second time. And he's thinking from a physical perspective, but he observes the way life is experienced in a realm is there has to be a birth to experience the realm that you're born into. So as he says that to Jesus, Jesus says to him, Nicodemus, assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. What was Jesus trying to convey to him? Nicodemus, you got it half right. Yes, you understand that it takes a birth process to experience a realm. So yes, the way you experience the physical realm is you had to have a physical birth. So that which is born of flesh is flesh. The way, Nicodemus, you experience this fleshly, temporal, material realm that you're living in right now, you got here one way. Remember, Nicodemus, no stork dropped you off. You're a big boy now. You were born. You came through the narrow birth canal. You were born into this realm. That's how you experience it. And Nicodemus, that which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. In the same way, Nicodemus, for you to experience the spiritual realm and to have relationship with God, you have to have a spiritual birth. There needs to come a moment when you are born spiritually, where you come alive spiritually, where through the salvation process, your spirit becomes awakened and alive to God. And that's what happens in the salvation experience when we accept Jesus Christ. When we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, surrender to him as our Lord, the Holy Spirit indwells us, he enters in, and the Holy Spirit awakens and makes alive our dead human spirit to become alive so that then we have life spiritually. Now our spirit's alive and we can have fellowship with God himself who is spirit as the spirit regenerates us. Titus says it this way, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, listen, through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. That's what needs to happen. That is why, again, in order for us to come alive to God, we have to be begotten again. We have to be born again or born anew. That's what Jesus means when he says you must be born again. You cannot have a relationship with God if you have never been born again. You cannot have access into heaven where God exists and dwells unless you've been born again. You can't just get familiar with the Bible and start attending church and start praying prayers and gradually ease your way into spirituality. You must be born again. Spiritual life can never happen, Jesus said, not me, Jesus said, until you're born again. I ask you this morning, are you born again? On July 12, 1992, I know that I was born again. I have no question in my mind about that. I know the date that I was born physically, and I know the specific moment that I was born spiritually. And I challenge and I ask you this morning, are you born again? And if you're not, listen, 
by faith alone you're saved this morning you need to pray and ask Jesus to save you that you might be born again and I tell you this the moment that you're born again the lights will turn on spiritually Nicodemus was very religious and something powerful happened when he oh that's what I was missing I knew all the Bible verses. I could pray prayers. I could go to religious meetings. I could lead people in religious systems. But what's missing in my life still? Nicodemus, you were never born again. And Jesus tells us we must be born again. He says this is part of God's salvation, that we were begotten again. He says, notice in the verse, to a living hope. That living hope assures us that we have eternal life together with Jesus Christ. Notice the word. I have it circled. It's a living hope. It's a living hope because that hope offers us victory over death. It's the guarantee for the Christian that there will be for you life with God beyond the grave. It's a living hope. Jesus said in John chapter 11, I am the resurrection and life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. It's a living hope. It's just a transition when the physical life is over. A person never truly dies that knows Jesus Christ. They just physically, the lights go out and life continues on as the spirit departs and goes to be in the presence with the Lord. The life continues with God. And so many today in our world, apart from Jesus Christ, it's tragic. They have such an uncertain hope. People in the world who don't know Jesus Christ, their definition of hope is something like, boy, I sure hope everything works out in the end. I'm kind of, I'm, I'm hoping it's all going to work out. I'm just, I'm just believing it's all going to work out in the end. It'll, somehow it'll all work out. I'm going to weigh out my good and bads and just hope there's a little more goods. And I'm sure hoping, and I'm optimistic, I'm hoping, it's just going to work out in the end. I'm a positive person. Well, listen, that positive attitude is not going to get you access into heaven. There's a living hope, if you know Jesus Christ, that is the absolute expectation of coming good. The biblical definition of hope is not, I hope something happens. It is an absolute expectation of coming good. It's an assurance for the child of God. It's not passive and uncertain. Our hope is in a person who rose from the dead and who possesses the eternal life that he offers to you and I. That's why Titus says that we are looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Christian hope is certain. It's sure. It's absolutely guaranteed, and we have that to hold on to. Now, notice what our hope is based on, and here's why it's a great guaranteed hope. Our hope is based on, verse 3, it says, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's a good basis for our hope. The fact that Jesus already overcame the death process, that is the basis for us overcoming the death process. That's the basis for us being in the presence of God together with him. And Peter knew that firsthand because he had encounters with the risen Jesus before he ascended back into heaven. So if anybody could say this with absolute conviction and a sense of certainty and assurance in his spirit, it was Peter because he encountered the risen, resurrected Jesus a few times before he ascended back in heaven. So Peter says, look, I guarantee you we have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead because I've seen him. 
I've experienced him. And I guarantee our hope is a living hope. The resurrection of Jesus is something that assures us that because he rose, we receive his power for resur- you know, resurrecting our dead spirit to be alive to God. And because Jesus lives, we have that absolute expectation of being a new creation. In a sense, you can think of it this way. His resurrection from the dead proves that God is satisfied with the payment of sin. When Jesus died on the cross, he said, it is finished. I believe when God rose him from the dead, God said, amen. Jesus said, it's finished. The father said, well, let me, let me give an amen to that. And he rose Jesus from the dead. I'm fully satisfied. He rises from the dead. It's that assurance that the payment was sufficient. And the life of Jesus now, because he's a risen Lord, is what provides you and I the power, the living power, the living hope to live out the Christian life to have victory over sin, to be able to overcome things with spiritual power. Look how Peter proceeds in verse 4. He says, he says, it's to an inheritance, now he's turning heavenward, to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. So Peter here in verse 4 speaks about the glorious destination that is ahead of the child of God, the thing that we look forward to as a Christian, the moment we accept Jesus as Savior and Lord, the Bible teaches we become a child of God. Is everyone created by God? Yes, we're all creations of God. But you do not become a child of God until you have been born again. Until you've been born spiritually, then you go from being just a creation of God to being coming actually God's child. Romans 8 says it this way, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Think about this. Our heavenly father's possession is what? All the glorious realm of heaven. So guess what? If you are a child of the heavenly father, your future destination is going to be the father's house and all the glories of heaven as well. More than that, we will share in everything that Jesus himself shares in and enjoys in that inheritance because it says we are co-heirs with Christ. We have this wonderful inheritance. That inheritance speaks of the glories of heaven. You might want to jot in your Bible or in your notes places like Revelation 4 and 5 and Revelation 21 and 22 where it describes this incredible inheritance that lies ahead of us as we experience the glorious realm of heaven. Now, Please take note, what Peter's describing here is not a reference to our rewards in heaven. He's talking about an inheritance here. Will there be rewards too? Absolutely. And that's why we faithfully serve Jesus now. We serve Jesus in this world, and as a result, we are rewarded in heaven according to what we do for the Lord as a Christian after we're saved. We, we accrue rewards in heaven for that. But what Peter's describing here is something, an inheritance that we just receive as the result of being a child of the Father and a brother to the Lord Jesus Christ. An inheritance is something someone receives that they come into possession of from what? Usually relationship. Typically, an inheritance is because you're a part of a family. It had nothing to do with something you earn. You don't earn an inheritance. You don't work for an inheritance. Quite honestly, you don't even have to merit or deserve an inheritance. I have three children, and everything in this life that I manage to work for, attain, or accrue will one day be delivered to my children. 
as for one reason, relationship. It will be their inheritance because of relationship. They don't have to work for it. They don't have to contribute to it. Quite honestly, they don't have to deserve it. They don't have to merit it. Because of relationship alone, it will be theirs rightfully because they inherit it as a result of a relationship. I don't know about you, but maybe sometimes you have the thoughts that I do. Have you ever met a person before too that maybe in your estimation, forgive me if I sound critical, is just like a lazy bum? Or they're like the most undeserving brat, and yet not, not you and I. The lazy bum or the undeserving brat just so happens to be born into the right family. You know, that maybe a really successful family business or a very wealthy family, or, and, and they just happen to get born into the right family, and as a result of the family that they're born into, it's, and who they know and what family they're in, they don't have to merit something. They don't even have to work for it. It will be theirs because by the grace of God, they, they were just born into the right family, right? And they went, oh man, wow, he was born into that family, him, her? Well, that's kind of like the inheritance that we're going to get from the Lord. Think about who we are. <laughs> and we're going to get the inheritance of heaven despite who we are just because we have a relationship with our Father and a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. We were born into the right family spiritually, truly. We have an inheritance that is ahead. And Peter describes this inheritance in a few words here in verse 4. He says this inheritance is incorruptible, which means that it's destruction-proof, incorruptible. It's something that won't ever corrode or decay over time forever and ever. And almost every material thing that we have in this present world, is it not true? It decays, it falls apart over time. Things rust, right? They wear out, they break down. Everything that we have, material can be destroyed, it can be damaged, a fire can burn down a home, your vehicle falls apart repeatedly. Everything in this life, it falls apart, it decays, it corrupts over time. Yet the glory of heaven will never wear out. Nothing will ever decay there. For all of eternity, the stability of heaven's glorious environment, it has a lifetime guarantee for real. It will never fall apart. Everything there that when the moment you experience it in all its glory and splendor, it will never diminish. It'll never decay in any way. It'll stay wonderful forever and ever. He also says that heaven's inheritance, notice, is undefiled. And that word means unable to be tainted or corrupted or polluted. It can't be ruined by anything or anyone. And again, compare that to this life. On earth, everything, everything, no matter how pure or perfect, everything here gets polluted. Why? Because people are polluted. <laughs> Our world is fallen and it's sinful. You can take the most perfect situation, you can take the most wonderful relationship, and it all has potential to eventually go sour. Because we are marred, we are flawed, and we live in a sinful, fallen world. Yet in heaven, listen, hear me, in heaven there's the absence of sin. There is no sin. So nothing can get polluted in heaven. Nothing can get defiled. Nothing or no one can pollute or defile a relationship, a situation, the experience it. We may mess everything on this earth up. Maybe you're here this morning and say, hey, that's me. I've, I've pretty much messed everything up. I've messed relationships up. I've messed my life up. I've ruined everything. Listen, you can't in heaven. That should be exciting. 
You can't mess anything up because it's undefiled. You can't mess up your inheritance in heaven. You can't defile it. You can't. And here's why. In heaven, there's the absence of sin. So there's the absence of problems. Picture that for a moment. Take a walk in the freezing cold today and think about imagine an existence and a realm where problems do not exist and they will never arise because there's the absence of sin. It's incorruptible. It's undefiled. Peter also says here that notice it does not fade away. And that term there speaks that it never suffers variations in its value, its worth or its beauty. It never diminishes in its value or beauty. Again, earthly inheritance Things can over time kind of diminish in their value. Property values drop. Vehicle values drop. Things that we own and possess and markets go down. But the inheritance of heaven, it's time proof. The value never diminishes. Nothing can make its value diminish. It's the idea of the newness factor. If I could illustrate it this way, you know, Christmas is around the corner. When a child gets a brand new toy, right? There's that wow factor of the newness. Oh, 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 and they're so excited. Oh, oh, look at it. And they're so, or the hockey stick, or the, oh, and, and they're so excited. And then what happens? The newness wears off. For some of our children, oh, oh, look at it. Is there anything else? Right? The newness wears off real quick. Same thing happens when you become adults. You get a brand new job. Oh, man, this new job is so great. Oh, this new job. And then really quickly, you work for about a week, and the novelty wears off. Happens in relationships, right? You fall in love. Oh, he's so wonderful. She, oh, she's so beautiful. Then you go on the honeymoon. Wonderful honeymoon. You come back from the honeymoon. Reality sets in. All the other... And all of a sudden, their newness wears off. Their novelty starts to wear off. That happens in this world. The newness wears off. The excitement, the enthusiasm, it fades... Listen, that will never be the case with heaven, Peter's saying. It'll never fade away. The newness, the novelty, the enthusiasm, the excitement about heaven, it will never wear off. You will never get bored in heaven. You're never going to be worshiping in heaven and get bored again. You know, oh, are we singing that song again? Oh, they sang that song last week. That same chorus again. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. That'll never happen. I know in your physical flesh, it will not, it can't happen in heaven. And I'll tell you why. Because every time you look to the throne of God and you see some new facet of who God is in his amazing existence, your mind will be blown. Wow! That kind of mercy? That, and every time you look at God in his presence, you will be amazed and astounded and you will fall on your face and want to worship all over again. And the novelty of all of heaven's glory will continuously just be like the first time that excitement, that enthusiasm. Peter says, this is what, notice, verse 4, is reserved in heaven for you. I like that word, reserved in heaven for you. If you make a reservation to go somewhere, you understand the idea. Your spot is being preserved. Your name is securing your spot, so it's reserved. You have a reservation which indicates that your place is being kept. You have a reservation at the marriage supper of the Lamb if you're a Christian. And your spot in heaven is reserved. 
your name is on your seat and if the Lord knows your name and you've accepted Jesus, then you can have the comfort and the insurance that even though you may flub up once in a while, you may make mistakes, you may make a mess of everything here, that if your faith and trust is in Jesus Christ and his work upon the cross for you, you have a reservation in heaven. And you can't mess up your reservation. God's not going to revoke your reservation. He's not going to do that. It's a reservation. It's guaranteed. If people here keep reservations, again, sometimes they don't keep their reservations, but God's different. Your reservation is sure. Maybe this morning, again, what once seemed very sure and reliable in your life isn't anymore. Maybe at one time your health was very reliable, and now your health, it's, it's not quite that reliable anymore. Maybe it was a job situation. Maybe some relationship or some dream sometimes crashes in our lives or our finances. Listen, nothing, nothing can ever change what's reserved in heaven for you. Nothing can affect it. Things can fall apart here. Things that were seemed to be guaranteed. I thought, this was, I thought this was reserved. I thought this was guaranteed. I thought that would always be guaranteed. I thought we would always be together. I thought I'd always have my health. I thought I'd always have this job. I thought we would always live at this economic status. I, I, I thought it would always be this. It's not always the case here on earth. But in heaven, certainty. We may struggle our way through this life, but listen, nothing can rock or change what is beholding for you to see on the other side of the veil the moment you close your eyes and go into the presence of the Lord. It is guaranteed. You can't mess it up. And Jesus said, nobody can snatch you or it out of my hand because the Lord's the one who's in charge of it. It's reserved. God keeps his word. And here's what I want you to see. This is why it is so reserved. Look at verse five. It says, who are being kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Here's the assurance, listen, the assurance of our preservation. This is why that reservation is so secure. It tells us right here in, in verses, at the end of verse four and five, the reason it says verse five is we are being kept and preserved for inheriting that. We are, are expecting a reservation, but God is keeping us and preserving us for the reservation until we get there. I love how Peter says we are being kept. And when you look at his term kept there, it's actually a military term which describes a garrison of soldiers that guard like bodyguards, someone who is weak and defenseless and can't keep themselves safe or secure. That's the term Peter uses there. He says we are being kept kept it speaks of us in our spiritual well-being in our weakness in our flesh that we are being kept it speaks powerfully of the security of the believer peter's assuring us of this with an encouragement and notice the source of god's preservation for you as a christian the source of the preservation you are kept by what the power of man the power of god the power of god i am so glad and thank God that it does not rest in my power to keep myself that it rests in God's power to keep me because too often like you I have weak links in my defense system spiritually I want to pray and I want to read the Bible more but my flesh wants to fall asleep or my flesh wants to do something else I want to serve the Lord more and give more of my dedication to him. But, you know, other selfish things consume my attention instead. Or I want to resist temptation, but I give in on occasion and indulge my flesh instead. And so often, like Peter, we understand where Jesus found him sleeping when he should have been praying. And Jesus said, Peter, your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. And how many times do we not know that? We're sleeping when we should be praying 
We're sinning when we should be standing strong in holiness and faith for the Lord. We're selfishly doing other things in our worldly carnal pleasures and indulgences when we could be serving the Lord. And, and we know that. Our, oh, we're willing inside, but our flesh is so weak. And because of that, Peter says, listen, let me assure you of one thing. And Peter knew failure better than anyone. He says, that heavenly reservation, it's reserved for you. And don't fret because you, you are being kept by the power of God. God's keeping your reservation and God is also keeping you by his power to make sure that you experience that reservation. It makes me so thankful the Lord does not leave us to maintain ourselves. He knows our frailty. He recognizes our limitations. And he is more committed to the relationship than we are. Again, I love Philippians 1. Being confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. God is more committed to the relationship than you are. And he has way more power to keep you until the culmination of the day that you meet him. We say, wow, how wonderful. That, that sounds so secure. And when you read through all of that, there's a part of us that goes, it almost makes it sound like that, it almost makes it sound like we have no part in this. You know, God's keeping us by his power. Do we have any part in it? Well, we do. Look at the end of verse five. Peter says, through faith. There's your part. In case you wanted a part, make you feel good. There's our part, faith. Belief. That's the one part we have in the process, to believe. Interesting, they came to Jesus in John chapter 6 and they said, Lord, what must we do to do the works of God? Jesus' response was this. This is the work, singular. He changes from plural to singular. What are the works of God that we should do? Jesus said, this is the work of God. Believe upon him who the Father has sent. What was Jesus reminding them of? He was saying, look, here's what God requires of you, that you believe, trust, that you trust in what he's done and that you trust in what he can do and you trust in who he is and you continue to have confidence and the assurance of your preservation is your faith believing, I believe God can keep me. I believe God can preserve me. I believe that God meant what he said when he said that he would finish a good work in me. And all the Father's looking for, he said, just believe, just trust me. You keep trusting me. That's what I want from you. I know you'll fail and stuff, but you just keep trusting me. Remember Jesus said to Peter, he said, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. You're going to fail, Peter. And he said, but... When you return, strengthen your brethren. But he also said this to Peter. He said, Peter, but I pray that your faith would not fail. Peter, you're going to blow it miserably. But just keep believing. Have faith, Peter. Believe that I can keep you by the power of God, that I can finish in your life what has begun. It says we are being kept by the power of God through faith, what for? For salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Notice the culmination of all we're experiencing in salvation. It's all still ahead of us yet more. It's ready to be revealed yet still. Jesus said, in my father's house are many mansions. And if it were not so, I wouldn't have told you. And he said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again. That where I am, you may be also. I want you to think about something. When Jesus lived in a body of flesh as a man, what was his occupation? We believe anyway, traditionally, because his father was a carpenter. A carpenter. Jesus said, I'm going to go prepare a place for you. I'm going to go get the bridal chamber ready 
for the marriage supper of the Lamb. And I'm going to come back and get you when I have everything already. Now listen, Jesus has been gone for 2,000 years. What kind of digs do you think Jesus has prepared for 2,000 years as a carpenter getting ready for you to come dwell with him forever? That, that's pretty exciting. That's pretty exciting.